This podcast is part of the Shareable Podcast Network. Learn more at shareable.fm. This podcast is Shareable. I'm your host, Jeff Gibbard, commonly known as the world's most handsome strategist and professional speaker. I'm also a superhero. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single Shareable episode. And that's it. That's the intro. Short and sweet. Let's get to the show. So, today on Shareable, I have David Fortino, Chief Strategist, Chief Strategy Officer, that is, of Netline Corporation, and he specifically asked that he be introduced with this song by Tool, and I am a very accommodating host here at Shareable. David, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much. You didn't think I was going to do it. Super happy to be here. It was a bit of a test, actually, so (laughs) filling out the little form uh in prep for the podcast yeah it was something no Did one's you have ever any special requests or something yeah. like that on there well it was like how would you like to be introduced because i yeah. you know i you know some people like a formal introduction some people just want me to kind of wing it right. and uh you're the first person that has ever requested a song uh, i so uh i felt I like often, it was you know i love it so thank you first of all for honoring the request yeah <laughs> I, I often think of uh the situation where like preferably especially pre-covid when we entered the office, I always had hoped that, you know, someday everybody would walk in each morning to their own preferred theme song. Kind of like you're coming up to bat as, yeah. a, as a batter. That should be a thing. It, I think it is a thing. So I was on a kickball team and we, our team name was Kick in a Box and everybody had a walkout song. So anytime you like went up to kick, you had a, a song, Yeah. Um, which I, I thought was really, really cool. And it's funny because I actually was uh, doing a podcast recently um, and I was asked, uh, you know, like what, what my theme song would be. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the first song that came to mind for me was, uh, all I do is win by DJ Khaled. Cause it's mm-hmm. just a little bit ridiculous. Uh, sure. you know, it's just a little over the top, just a, a skosh. I like um, it. so I kind of went with that. <laughs> yeah. So what's Love up, it. man? It's good to have you on the show. I'm, uh, I'm really glad that we're going to like, we're going to geek out a little bit. So like, yeah, listeners, like it. today is a geek out kind of episode. Love it. Yeah. It's, uh, content about content right so yeah man um, yeah super excited to be here cool Thanks. i don't honestly like i don't on uh often get the opportunity to uh to talk to someone uh, in in your uh stature of uh overseeing of things and like you know uh, insight into things so uh i i really am excited to like you know really pick into your brain about this uh this content report so for for those that don't know who Netline is and, uh, you know, have never uh, heard you on another podcast or, or seen any of your things. Why don't you just give like a quick introduction of who you are, uh, what Netline's about, and then um, and then I got a whole bunch of stuff I want to dig into. Sure. Yeah, let's do it. So Dave Fortino, uh, Chief Strategy Officer here over at Netline. Netline is the owner and operator of the largest content-centric B2B lead gen platform on the web. Remove all the buzzwords and jargon I just said, and quite simply, we help B2B marketers translate their content into engagement with their preferred prospects that develop in the pipeline. And so if you've got webinars, um, case studies, white papers, podcasts, you name it, if your goal is to create that content as a way to foster dialogue with your ideal customer profiles and or target personas, Our platform allows you to do that, but the byproduct is not traffic, right? Which is typically what you would see for much of the industry. It's to take that idea of targeting a persona and distill that down to actually a person, meaning an actual user gave you their voluntary information 
that you can then cultivate and translate into dialogue, whether that's nurture on a marketing side or escalation over to sales and so on. The key byproduct is always first party fully permissioned data that our clients can then leverage and ultimately drive that into book business, right? That's the goal of all of this. So um, yeah, from a technology perspective, we are powering the lead gen stack for over, I guess, close to now 14,000 pieces of content across the platform, covering about 8,000 marketers, specifically leveraging the technology to accomplish those goals um, that I was mentioning earlier. Rockin'. Well, I came by Netline by way of uh, John Steyert, one of my favorite human beings, uh, and he introduced us. And, and it's funny because when he first came to Netline, like I, I looked at the site and I was like, okay. And, and like six months might have gone by. And then I was like, John, what, what, what is it that you guys do? And so we had a conversation. He told me a little bit about it. And then like you and I had met and, um, you know, I wound up running a couple tests on Netline with mm-hmm. a couple clients of ours. And we had put a couple pieces of content out there to try and generate some leads. And it was like 48 hours later, we had like 25 leads for this client. We had spent like a, a stupid little amount of budget relative to like, I have a very deep background in running Facebook ad campaigns and LinkedIn ad campaigns. I've done like all of these different things. We have these complex funnels and all of this stuff that we do. And we like literally were just like, oh, let's try out this netline thing. And we threw like 500 bucks at it. And like all of a sudden we had a stack of leads that were like, we had like the, the lead data we even got like versus like your, your Facebook lead data where somebody has like their, their Yahoo address tied to it. And you don't even know if it's, you know, the email that they use and you have nothing else. And then we get this list from netline. I was like, okay, we have like their company name. We have their first name, last name with their phone. Like we have all of this stuff. It was like remarkable to me. So yeah. That so was, you just that was said my intro. No. And that's, that's awesome to hear because that's really the core value prop, right? Which is yeah. The deliverable, leads that people or users are providing their data by consuming content that you've pushed out across our platform. But what you really spoke to were really two elements. One was the performance-based pricing model, which I didn't mention. So unlike most um, B2B SaaS software, you're paying on an annualized license or cost per month per seat basis. This is completely performance-based, but it's on a CPL or a cost per lead basis. So unlike running, and you had said you'd mentioned uh, your experience with social, unlike running paid search uh, and or amplified campaigns with social, or even maybe an Outbrain or a Taboola, those are all CPC generally. You can use CPM as well. But both of those models, although good at creating exposure, and that could be a goal of yours, it's just not a goal of ours from a company perspective. Our goal is to deliver first-party data that users have provided. And this gets to your second point, which is you put your content out there. Our system has an algorithm called audience target. It, you know, it, distilling this into a really simple perspective, it's nothing more than a one-one matchmaker. It's taking first-party data that users have already provided to us. So where they work, their company name, their company industry, sub-industry, job level, job function, job area. Matches that to their content consumption behavior and tries to bubble up content that we feel not only is relevant to who they are as a professional, but most importantly, gets to your filter requirements as a client. And so when you're talking about getting leads that like match the criteria that you desired and also having rich data sets, it's because of that matchmaking process that we're able to say, okay, out of all of these audiences, it's not about targeting a group of people who we think are, I don't know, IT, IT decision makers. 
it's definitively targeting IT decision makers in specific size companies in certain industries and so on. As a customer experience that you experienced, those are the only leads that you receive. So unlike a traditional, I don't know, um, if, if we're going back to your search example, you're paying for traffic and hoping that those users net out into a lead. In this case, it's the opposite. You don't pay for traffic. You're paying for leads that definitively match your criteria. You decide what that criteria is in the interface and, uh, and that's it. So it's, um, yeah, it's a bit up, up, upside down model for people who come from paid social and or paid search where the onus is really on you to drive that final element of the pipeline where it's, or the funnel whereby you're buying traffic, you've modeled everything out and you're trying to get to a lead. Ours is kind of saying, well, your starting point with Netline is getting a lead, a user who's uh, definitively engaged with your content, provided data, which is fully permissioned for you to then take forward. So glad yeah, you had that it, experience. When I first heard about it before we had run a test or whatever, um, I very much was like, okay, what's the catch? Um, because it, it definitely sounds a little nutty. So just for the B2B marketers listening right now, I would strongly suggest checking out Netline. This is not in any way a commercial for Netline. Like I didn't bring David on said so I could like pitch Netline or said he could. Like I've just legitimately had a good experience about it. And we're going to talk about the 2021 state of B2B content consumption and demand report that just came out. They do this annual report and what you guys put into it is like absolutely like mind boggling. Was it like 40 petabytes of data was analyzed to like come up with all of these insights. So that's what we're, we're going to talk about today, but I didn't want to neglect to kind of give people the context of like what this platform is, what it does and why it's credible to listen to what the heck you guys have to actually say about it because it legitimately works. And um, we, I've kind of taken to the posture of if I have a B2B client, instead of kind of what our original, what my original recommendations would often be, you know, paid search, email marketing, you know, lead funnels, things like that, and social marketing, I've now started to go towards like, let's just come up with a really good lead magnet. Let's get it on Netline as your starting point. Let's generate some leads to start with. And then let's integrate that in with a more holistic, large scale campaign that includes awareness, you know, consideration, part of the funnel, et cetera. But like, if like the goal is like, we need to get leads now, like it, it's just such a great platform that you guys have. So just wanted to give you that shout out and those kudos, but uh, yeah, I want to, I want to pivot to talking to, about a number of different things here. So the, the content consumption demand report is definitely one part of it. But before we do that, I want to start out on this thing that you've mentioned kind of um, in, in talking, you've, you've mentioned first party data, and third party. I, I want to talk about the first party data, third party data thing for just a few minutes, if we could, yeah. um, because I think it's the sort of thing I've seen it in a lot of your marketing out there. Like I follow your content out there. I mean, I follow John, so I see a lot of your stuff come out, and um, and and I see this this term first party data thrown out there a lot. And I think if you're in the inside of the industry, you're like, oh, well, that makes sense. I know what that means. Sure. But for those who are maybe you know, not necessarily like hardcore B2B marketers that are like learning every trick of the trade and, you know, in it daily, but they are in a B2B company and they're in the marketing function. And it's not quite clear to them why the heck it matters. First party data versus third party data. What's the difference between the two? Why do I care as kind of the underlying thing? Let, let's start with for the company itself, the marketer who's going to be doing marketing. Why should they care about first party data versus third party data specifically related to what it means for them as a company. Leave the customer aside for the time being. We'll get to that. But just for the company, why should sure. I care as a marketer? Yeah, I mean, this is all about, and, and I even add the component here that you don't have to be a B2B marketer to care about this. B2C is appropriate as well. 
First party data is about having a direct relationship with an, a user that has voluntarily provided their information. And so if you've been paying attention to a couple of different things, right? There's been a ton of governmental pushback across the entire globe at this point around giving users their rights back around data ownership, around targeting of data. Um, largely that's because of the misuse of ad tech, whether you're talking about Google and or a global conglomerate and uh, you know, a mud of an ad tech ecosystem. Everyone's really, and unfortunately abused a lot of free tools that are out there, you know, giving users the ability to engage with content didn't ever mean to an end user that their data was being sold 75 times when they visited a web page, right? The average user, to your point, has no idea that that stuff even takes place. Um, short of them maybe situationally reading something uh, or seeing like a 60 minutes briefing or something like that on TV, they don't really know what's happening when they're visiting a web page. And so part of this movement towards the importance of first party data really and unfortunately is driven by the abuse of user rights over the past decade, if not more, by advertisers and or ad tech companies. Um, when it comes to first party data and what that means for you as a company, it means that you, because they voluntarily gave you that data, you're already at a point well beyond this notion, and you've probably caught me mentioning this a few times about person versus persona. You're not guessing who this user is. You know, you know it's Jeff or you know it's Dave because of the fact that they told you that. And by, by default, if the goal of all marketing is to try to drive dialogue through trust and build credibility so that they purchase, whether it's a B2B software solution or simply purchase, I don't know, uh, you're, I'm a cyclist, so like a uh, new bike frame, let's say something like that. A lot of that is built upon that level of trust of the brand, right? What do they stand for? What do their products stand for? Are they quality or not? By you providing that information, you're opening the door to have a two-way dialogue versus historically, and still happening until 2022, targeting anonymous cookies and really uh, extracting as much data as possible on the user without the user ever knowing that that's occurring. And so you know, you're seeing a, a movement to foot both from the ad tech industry being forced to get away from third-party data use from a government perspective. You're also seeing Apple lead the charge from a device perspective of saying, we're going to put privacy rights first. We don't care, Facebook, um, that I believe I saw like 13% of users who are now seeing the uh, opt-in consent uh, message within the Facebook app are actually consenting to share data with Facebook. As you can imagine, that has massive implications. I heard it was much lower than that. I heard it was like 6% or 4%. Well, or let's saying, hope yeah, so. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm down with it. I, I've been ripping on Facebook for like a yeah. decade at this point. So yeah. yeah. And so like, I think you know, Facebook, because of their size and their ability to sell that data, that's, that's one issue. I, I think from my perspective, though, it's less about one single entity monetizing you, and it's it's deeply concerning that when you visit any major media property, there's you know 30 to 75 cookies immediately dropping on you. That means your data was just sold. And what also means is that your data was sold, but also continuously sold without you knowing and or being privy to it moving forward. Or benefiting nor, from it. Yeah, nor, yeah, you're not getting financial benefit nor any other user experience benefit. That's it. And so 
First party data is about really users taking their rights back and saying that I'm deciding who gets to engage with me as a brand. And I'm deciding what I'm willing to tell them and or give them so that they can learn more about me. Uh, you know, I think lastly, because of the deprecation and Google amazingly has been leading the charge here of cookies and cross-site domain usage of cookies, uh, that's going to have massive impact on a lot of the other historical you know, awareness type initiatives because of the fact that you're not going to have as great of a level of targeting moving forward as you do today. You know, starting 2020, you'll be dealing more with cohorts and or groups of populations that are like-minded. But definitively, if you're relying on display-oriented targeting initiatives, you're going to be really dealing with groups of people who you believe have a propensity to convert into whatever you're looking to accomplish. So the sooner you're leaning towards first party data, the, the more likely that you'll be operating not only from a form of consent, which is hugely important, um, but also a form of, uh, and a position of knowledge, right? You, you actually do know definitively who this person is and you've gotten past this idea of just targeting personas and hoping that a person nets out at some point and raises their hand. You know, you see constantly across the industry, it's like give people an experience or give people content uh, or offer a product that people actually want. It's true, it's common sense. But if you do that, and to your point, I believe you mentioned like, let's, let's create a great lead magnet. Yeah, create some content that's truly valuable to the person, whether consumer oriented or B2B, that helps them do whatever their interest might be better than what they would have been doing perhaps the day before. By doing that, they're going to give you some data to access that, whether it's an email address or more, great. Beyond that though, if your content truly stands for what you said it would be, uh, now you've developed a relationship that you can reference and say, hey, we've just you know, offered you this foundational element of knowledge or tips or whatever it might be to make you more productive. And there's, there's a subliminal context that's created there between that user and the brand that, that distills into loyalty and trust. From there, that's how you build lasting relationships and ultimately customer relationships as well. Got it. So there's an immense number of benefits. I mean, some of the big ones I heard there is just, you know, the targeting is like a really big one that you're able to actually kind of one-to-one -one because people have volunteered their information rather than sort of the, the gleaned profiles that all these other networks are offering to you. And then you have the, you know, the kind of the trusted relationship that's starting out with because you're building it on permission in the beginning. And I'd imagine there's a lot of marketers who might think, okay, great, well, I'll add that to my mix, but I'll still use all of this other sketchy third-party data while it's still available and get what I can. And um, obviously that that is kind of what it is. The benefits to the consumer, I'd imagine, are very much around starting to claw back some of their rights around their data and in just kind of in, in brief, I'll ask you, how far do you see this going in the future with this move from third party to first party? Do you see that we're actually going to get to a point where consumers actually have full rights over their data and that the relationship between people and brands is going to be fundamentally changed and it's going to start to be on a more level playing field? Or do you see this as sort of like you guys have found a unique Diamond in the rush, kind, diamond in the rough kind of niche got ahead of the curve. We're doing this longer than others, and saw this as a really great opportunity. But that you know the powers that that are trying to sell people's data right now are just going to find sneakier ways of capturing it. Like, do you see that it's going to it's going to shift back, or do you think that it's going to move into this space where we have this sort of data, uh, you know, autonomy utopia? 
Yeah. So as much as I'd love to be the optimist here and say that users control their rights moving forward, uh, you know, whether that's 10 years from now or five, it's hard to believe simply due to the fact that there there's billions of dollars being spent around retargeting on the display side of the industry and third-party data. I mean, there's public companies that solely sell data that's been scraped across the web. That's crazy to me. Yeah, that's crazy. That that your your product as a company really isn't anything more than data that you perhaps um, you modeled. I would say cough stole uh, from users, which is it's mind-boggling in a way. So as much as yeah, I'd, I'd love to believe that users get to a position where they're the gatekeepers truly of their data. I don't know if that's realistic. That said. I do foresee this continuing for some time forward where we get to a point where it becomes extremely uncomfortable for ad tech uh, to the point where there will be consolidation where some companies are, are just going to be compromised. They don't have alternative paths of either data capture and or direct relationships with users. Um, you know, if, if you're not a media company and you have nothing to give a user in order for them to voluntarily share their data or even consent to a cookie disclosure, then what is your existence, right? What, what is the data that you have? Because if theoretically you have no direct relationship with the user through editorial or anything other, the question remains, is like, wh where is your fit in the overall ecosystem five years from now? Because right now, I mean, you saw last year, right? And the year before, a ton of companies have actually left the EU and closed their third-party data marketplaces in the EU. And these are big companies like Oracle, probably is the largest, and said, we're out of third-party data sales in the EU because of GDPR. If, if same, you know, we're seeing this with CCPA in California and the US is trying to consolidate and kind of normalize one's national standard for data rights and protection, if that happens in the US, those companies will be forced to do the same exact thing that if, if it becomes no long, longer feasible to sell third-party data at the scale where they're making hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars, then that then drives fundamental change. So perhaps the shortest answer here is that, yeah, users are still gonna keep pushing. And I think smart politicians will continue to rally around this and saying users deserve the rights behind their data. But yeah, companies will be innovative. Um, you're already seeing some folks try to create a cookie alternative uh, kind of based in fingerprinting, which is probably a whole other chat someday, but that I don't think is viable either. Um, it, it's kind of like, um, not that I have one of these, but it makes me think of like radar detectors and they used to be big, I guess, <laughs> 20 years ago. But the joke about radar detectors was was that every generation of a radar detector you bought and put in your car, the police would then just innovate their own radar technologies so that they'd have better ways of you not detecting them. And the radar detector would come out with a better version to detect that new radar standard. And it would continue on and on and on to the point where now, I don't know if people buy radar detectors anymore. So yeah, um, yeah so I guess that point was maybe users started to give up, right? Where they felt they've made enough uh, impact here and there's not much more to be gained. Got it. All right. Well, let's talk about this uh, content consumption and demand report. So you guys put out an annual report every year and um, 
you know, just the long and short of why you do that. What are you hoping to accomplish by putting that annual report out? Like, what do you, what sort of um, value are you trying to deliver to people by putting this out? And and kind of what's the the kind of high level quick overview of like what is the report about? Yeah, yeah. So the the report's completely about content consumption behavior that's occurred across the B2B web over the past year. It takes a look at all that first party data that we capture, removes all the personally identifiable elements that people have shared. And we try to distill that into observations and learnings that B2B marketers can take away um, and apply to their own day-to-day tasks uh, and strategies really from a marketing execution perspective. Our goal for the report was nothing more than to give back to the industry. And it kind of gets back to, you had mentioned a lead magnet, right? And I was saying, task yourself with creating content that really helps someone do what they do. So if it's a consumer oriented piece, and I don't know, you're you're a running brand, like how can you make a runner better at what they do, regardless of whether they buy your product? If you can and I don't know what the answer would be to that question, but if, if you could come up with some piece of content around training or something like that, then that's going to be your piece and your foundation to build from. Ours was this, and that it's one thing to talk about you know, processing a ton of first-party data and delivering customer experiences like the one you had referenced earlier. It's another thing to let the data talk for itself. And that's really been the goal for the company is to elevate the brand by letting the data that we process really be front and center and less so about, you know, the executive team and less so about us running around the industry talking about products and and so on and so forth. Yes, that's a passion of ours. Obviously, we have to have a good product in order for it to work. But the data is the validator, right? And that this is what's happening. These are the, the true behaviors of these users and how they consume content, where they work, the industries and so on. And so, yeah, our mission was to, you know, first try to build a level of credibility that the brand didn't have uh, when we first started the report. And by doing that, the dialogue has been elevated for us as a company with not only with prospects, but with people we don't know. And, um, and that's phenomenal to hear you know, customers come in two years later and say, yeah, my first introduction to you was this report back in 2018. And I started checking it out and I knew I needed to learn this stuff wasn't comfortable. No one in management believed in me and I had no content marketing strategy at all. So they went off and did their work. And then they've kind of come back and said, well, all right, now I've got a strategy. It's time to execute and I've got great content and now I need you to activate it. And so that's really kind of where we've uh, fell into play here. Cool. So you've got this enormous report. I have gone through the entire thing. Uh, It is it is thick with data. There's a lot in there. So I want to ask you being part of the team that helps to conceptualize this report should even exist and has seen all the data in it, I'm sure. And all of that, what are two or three of the high level things that you got out of this year's report that you think listeners would want to know about the world of B2B? Like what are some of like the, the two to three big ones that if they walk away from this episode, knowing a little bit more about B2B will be one of these three things. Yeah. So first, and this one comically comes up every year, but this year it turned out that 87% of all content being consumed within organizations is consumed below the C-suite. It kind of makes sense, right? When you think about that, there's just less C-suite people inside a company. Yet, 
the reason why it's always interesting to me and important to highlight is that when you talk to marketers, especially those that are being tasked with an execution from their CMO, their CMO or their CEO says, we need to break into these companies or these accounts or in this industry, and we need to influence their C-suites or their executives. And so what's comical is the, the person who's tasked that team to do so is also the person that ironically isn't consuming that content and their peers in the management team aren't going out and digesting webinars and, and registering for white papers. They're just not doing it. And so it's really important as a you know, boots on the ground marketer to understand and use this data as a way to combat some of those disciplines and or uh, initiatives that are being pushed down to you inside an organization, showing that user behavior doesn't match your aspirations. And so it's really important to use data to inform um, your reality, right? It's I, I've seen it constantly where a, cl a client might come to us and say, we're targeting this industry and this job level and this job function. We need to do 5,000 leads in a month. Well, we can look back at our own data and say, well, there's doesn't seem to be that there's even 5,000 people in the universe that match your criteria. Let's go check LinkedIn as another source. We'll go into Sales Navigator and just do a raw query of those filters of those audiences and saying, how many people are li listed in LinkedIn that match that criteria? Well, it turns out there's you know 800. So where did you get this number? Oh, our CEO just said, we need to do this. And it's like, well, that's a great example of, of if you're using data to inform your strategies, you're starting in a position of strength because you know your market realities. So that's one. The other is the consumption gap. And this is a phrase that we've formed, I want to say back in 2018. And it was, it's a completely proprietary data stat that we invented, I suppose, that was based upon a random observation. And we had never tracked this before, but we always had the data. And so when you create content that's gated, you obviously have two timestamps, really. Every marketer has this. No one else talks about this until you know, we started kind of productizing this stat, which is there's the moment the user registered for the content. And then there's the moment that the user actually got around to engaging with it, whether that's reading it, uh, watching, listening, and so on. It turns out that it typically takes around 27 hours for the average user to dive into that content that they've registered for. It, depending upon job levels and industries and job areas, it could be more, it can be less. But out of processing 4.3 million leads over the past year, that netted out to around 27, 28 hours. That is hugely important to understand both as a marketing team, but more importantly, if you're in the B2B discipline and you're escalating those, those leads over to your sales colleagues, that context of knowing that the user hasn't read your content, hasn't viewed your webinar just because they registered for it, fundamentally needs to change your behavior. You cannot, and you see this constantly happens to me every day, if I'm registering for someone else's content out on the web, I'll get an email and a phone call within minutes saying, hey, thanks, just want to check, you know, I want to make sure uh, you've had a chance to check out the report. And it's like that literally minutes ago, I registered for this. I know nothing about your content. I have not read it. I don't plan on getting into it yet. And, and so right off the bat, you're kind of starting off on not only the wrong foot, but it's a bit tone deaf, right? People are, we're all busy. And so the likelihood 
you think of this as an end user that someone's just going to sit down and read your 50 page report like ours instantly it's foolish right that's not going to be the case there's a million things that they've got to do they probably won't even read the whole thing and so that gets to the need to really kind of create content that's nicely briefed um you know if you're using uh, many other preferences out here, uh, atomizing the content around trying to break things down, make it uh, bite-sized packaged, and, and even distill some of that larger asset like our report and break that down into kind of micro reports and things like that for quicker consumption. But yeah, if you ignore that reality, you're starting off on the wrong foot and really leading from uh, a really a poor impression, I would say, of your brand because you're not paying attention to users' needs and or the realities of how users behave with content. It's not to say that you can't reach out immediately. It's just the context of that initial reaching out. You shouldn't say, hey, thanks for downloading my report. Um, love to get your thoughts on it. All of the normal things that you'd probably see from sales. It's another thing to say, hey, thanks for downloading this report. There's a ton of great stuff in it. Um, if you paid attention to their first party data that they provided to you, maybe you learn that they're in a certain industry. So as a salesperson, the best thing you could do is say, hey, like check out 30, page 37. I think it's going to be a really good one for you. And call attention to snippets of the content or if it's a timestamp inside a video that's of particular relevance to that person, create that context and say, yeah, I'll be in touch in a week or so once you've had a chance to get to it. If you need anything in the meantime, I'm here. It's all about being a concierge, right? Being uh, as helpful as possible, leading with with value, hopeful that that value will translate into trust. Dig it. Those are some really good insights and uh, ones that I immediately began thinking about the lead, the the email marketing automation that comes after the lead magnet. And, and if there's that 28 hour, and I immediately started doing the math in my head, thinking about like the the, the time aspect of your report about like the different times of day and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I think, well, maybe they're downloading it at one and then the next day at 10 AM <laughs> is when they're actually getting to. So anyway, um, yeah. But yeah, there's a lot there. So let me ask you this. So those are a, a couple like high level things that, um, that people should walk away with. Um, let's kind of flip that and say, what's something that people think is important, but that in going through the report, you learned that actually doesn't matter. Right? Like, I think that there's a lot of, like, for years I would get, like, what's the best time to tweet? And I was like, eh, it's kind of like, you can look at all these aggregated reports and get a gen, but like, ultimately it's going to be different for you and everybody else. But like, here's the general kind of gist of things, but like, don't worry about it too much. What are some of those things that like you find yourself over and over having people say like, oh, they asked this particular question. You're like, well, we've looked at 40 petabytes of data and that's actually kind of irrelevant. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, I, I've often seen a lot of folks struggle with creating content associated to their own funnel. And so if you're a follower of the B2B industry as a whole and, and any B2B marketing practice, whether serious decisions uh, and kind of their demand funnel, um, even before that, there's always been this association of associating content to the buyer's journey. I completely believe in the necessity for content being mapped to discrete Uh, problems and or pain points that users might have in their buyer's journey. I do not believe that buyers follow a linear path in their buyer's journey. So if you came to us and said, and or outside of Netline, and we're running a piece of content that was bottom of funnel content, typically bottom of funnel content would be content focused on 
perhaps uh, vendor comparisons, um, pricing matrix and feature matrix types of, types of content. Could even be uh, maybe like a Forrester report, things like that, where, where there's a deep analysis going back and vendor by vendor comparisons and even a you know, magic quadrant type thing. Um, the, the challenge with that is that you're entering it with this mindset that users follow this linear path of saying, well, today I'm going to go my exploration process of identifying vendors and, and tomorrow I'm going to go beyond discovery and start going into deeper learnings and start comparing features and so on. More often than not, and everything that we see supports that is that it's completely random. And it partly is random because of urgency. And so when you've got, let's say a directive inside your company from the CEO saying, we need to address this pain point immediately, you're, you're bypassing a traditional funnel. You're simply going and saying, okay, I'm gonna find some resource that consolidates the hundred plus vendors that sell product X find the top five, I'm probably gonna float an RFP to all five of them. And whoever comes back with the best price and the solutions that most appropriately fit my needs, they're gonna get on a short, shorter list and then we'll make a call. Um, I've countless times done this myself where I already know the vendors who are addressing a pain point that we might have. So I'm just gonna skip their content entirely and go straight to pricing. And the pricing is, a necessity because if I can decide whether a, a vendor is perhaps too rich, too expensive for our taste, I'm going to rule them out regardless of their product being perhaps the better solution. That might be an enterprise grade solution and we're a company of you know, 50 plus employees. And so the, the math just won't, won't work for us. And that's, that's is what it is. And so why go through that linear path of saying, okay, I've learned every possible nuance of this product and their solution and what this brand stands by. And I've went through five of their webinar case studies and so on, when in reality, it's going to be a $300,000 investment and I've got a budget for a 30K investment. So more often than not, you see that happening uh, where users are fast tracking their consumption and then, then going up and saying, okay, well, if I already figured out that you're probably a good one for me and I've got like two or three good ones, now I'm going to go up the funnel in terms of discovery and learn a little bit more about your products and your features and maybe a competitor that also uses you. Uh, and that's a great example of this mindset of saying, oh, I'm going to walk this user through this perfect funnel. And we're going to tick boxes actually in our marketing automation system saying that, nope, now they've scored and they've escalated. They've actually gone through this stage and they've requested this content. So therefore they must be in bottom of funnel and ready to purchase. And that's just simply not the case, unfortunate to, I mean, there's massive consultancies that run around preaching and teaching this. And it's a tough one because I think a lot of marketers have been conditioned to think this way, mm -hmm. but content consumption behavior would say otherwise. It's interesting because I, I, whenever I'm dealing with a client, we always go through the funnel and the buying journey. And the reason we do it is because prior to that, there was just nothing. It was just sure. like, it's blank. It's like an empty whiteboard, right? So sure. like if we're going to start somewhere, let's assume that we have people at different stages and you need content for each stage of the journey. I think what you're alluding to is that you probably need all of those pieces of the funnel. You just need to assume that people are going to enter it at different stages in a nonlinear fashion and Absolutely. that they may bounce around from top of the funnel to middle. So it's, and I often describe, so I have a, a diagram that I put together where what I show as the funnel is actually more like a web. I think what it really looks like is that you have people that are going to enter at different places and they may wind up 
finding themselves back at the beginning of your funnel. Exactly. But in more of like a web type format, like they came in from the side and it's not, it's not this linear thing. So that's exactly that. that. I completely buy that. Yeah. And it's just about also thinking through your content to help create, mentioning the web is perfect actually, because if you design your content well, you can have assets for every step of that journey, but most importantly, have those assets interconnected, right? So whether it's a webinar and you are hosting it in some webinar interface, deep link inside that interface is like in a little resource area to other content that might be top of funnel content, beginning stages of the journey. Conversely, if you created like an ebook, which is typically an associated to top of funnel, more awareness and mass volume play, right? Creating as much inbound volume as possible. Have that ebook, have a few embedded resources in there that deep link into bottom of funnel content too. Thereby you're creating that web that you just described and not waiting on users to kind of traverse different elements of the web. You're kind of giving them the, the, um, that silk, if you will, within the web to kind of connect themselves to those various elements. Yeah. hundred yeah, percent. Makes sense. Yeah. So, uh, last thing I want to, uh, talk to you about with regard to the, um, the report is, um, and you've, how long have you been doing the report? You personally, like how long have you been involved with it? Since 2018. 2018. Okay. So you've, you've been down this uh, road before a number of times. So let me ask you this, this year, 2021, I think we can all, uh, safely assume that we have lived through some unprecedented experiences over the last year and a half. And this is, you know, looking at, you know, what's gone on since the beginning of COVID. And, and, you know, I know you really should report the year before that touched on that a little bit. Um, what surprised you when you looked at all of this stuff there, there was so much data in there. Um, I looked through and I found a, a couple things that I found surprising, but I'm curious, given, you know, your depth in this, what are some some data points that emerged, some things that you looked at and you're like, huh, well, that's interesting. I didn't expect that. What are some of those things for you? I think, and this might sound a little wishy-washy, but um, you know, to me, what's intriguing is that, yeah, there was a 22% increase in content consumption. And I could just stop there and say, okay, well, yeah, COVID created a ton of uncertainty. Um, but to me, from an aspirational perspective, and perhaps an emotional perspective, it, it was an incredibly challenging period and arguably still is. Uh, it was really encouraging actually to see the types of things that were occurring across the platform by users leaning into content to solve human problems, right? This, this got past just business viability. This got back to safety and security, living another day um, from that perspective too. And it's, yeah, it's a bit inspirational to see users in a moment of fear, right? I I suppose we're always wired as as humans to fight or flight. And, And through content consumption, it's proven that we as a populace chose to fight. And that's really encouraging because I suppose there were folks that just hunkered down and said, I'm not, I'm not going to try to think of anything new or take on anything new and let's just be afraid and, um, and hope that we get through the other side here. The content consumption data that we report upon says the otherwise, uh, which that most professionals actually leaned into content to learn and distill knowledge that they could apply through this incredibly tough time. Um, yeah, there's a ton of other nuggets that 
are interesting in terms of formats exploding like webinars they they went off the charts massive growth especially on-demand webinars um i don't know how long that'll live right I, I feel like there will be an adjustment back we're always hearing about zoom fatigue right now and and so on and webinar fatigue too i do think that there will be a slight correction there but this idea of users really only exclusively going back to more written content. I don't. I don't think that's the case. I think people uh, naturally gravitate to faces, right? And and trying to interact with humans. And since we're starting to be able to do that again um, outside of web content, that's exciting too. So I think another takeaway would be how hybrid content is created in the future. And I don't think anyone's doing this well of having companion content that's easily consumed online and in a face-to-face -face environment with interactivity across both. Uh, that'll be an intriguing space to follow. Maybe we'll have stuff to talk about there in the future. But yeah, I, I, I suppose, you know, my big takeaway is more of a philosophical one. And it's one that we've just not ever had to comment on, right? Like we, we've, we just cover B2B data. We're not solving the world's problems. We're not curing cancer. We're not putting rovers on Mars. Uh, you know, these are users who are translating the leads that uh, ultimately develop pipeline for our customers. And for the first, first time in our history, uh, things have become more serious than developing sales for clients, right? This was about life and death at some capacity. And I was, it was interesting to cover. I hope we don't have to do it again. Um, but yeah, it's, it's encouraging to see people lean in um, and say, hey, I'm going to lean into some content to find my solutions and find a level of comfort that I don't have in this uncomfortable situation. Wow. I So the one I had written down is mobile consumption fell by about 7% and you just went there. <laughs> I was like, that's odd. And you were like, humans are fighters. Like I appreciate <laughs> the depth of the analysis there. I was not expecting that. Um, the mobile so yeah. one though, to tick that real quick, mobile just made sense to me uh, just because we're all stuck at home. And so there, okay. I hadn't considered that. I just think in general, like mobile's just going to keep going up. As I think you'll see a big correction. Okay. Uh, but, but to us, mobile's really always been about, especially because our type of content, right? You're not reading like an article or a blog post. Yeah. It tends to be pretty gated, heavy content. And so mobile tends to be stuff that we see at commute times, right? People are on the train or on a bus yeah. or, um, and so they are, engaging and or registering for content, then uh, then they're at the office consuming it whenever uh, time okay. allows. That so makes on. more but, sense. I, I hadn't considered that. Well, let me ask you about a related uh, fact, and this is the last question I'll have for you today. But um, the other one that I saw on the report that I thought was interesting is that the average time it took for professionals to consume content rose by over an hour from 28.5 to 29.7. So this is that, what you call the consumption gap. So like the time it took them between when they registered, when they checked it out, rose that seemed curious to me, given that we're more of us are working from home. So it's like at the time that you're doing that, you're probably still at home. There's no commute. There's, there's, I didn't understand like what those possible factors could be. So I found that a little bit surprising. I don't know if you have yeah. that. Yeah. And sometimes when I was saying we let the data do the talking, it's true. And sometimes there, there are things that we report upon that are a bit mystifying, right? But the data is what it is. And so I, I suppose the hypothesis there is that. Uh, being that we're at home, sure, you know, we could easily consume that content. But being that we're home, we're also more easily distracted 
we can do what we want, when we want, how we want, without any people and or peers looking over our shoulders to what we're looking into. That'd be my hypothesis. There's no proof to it. We don't survey users for this. This is not one of those reports where we're saying we're surveying 200 people and this is the visualized yeah. findings, right? This is 4.3 million leads and the raw data just being distilled. So yeah, it's intriguing. Um, and we'll see how that changes. My guess is that as we're heading back into offices in some capacity, that'll change again. Um, but yeah, your guess is as good as mine, quite honestly. It's an intriguing one. Awesome. Well, the report is like mind boggling. I've been following it for a couple of years now. And um, I, I just think it's it's such a wealth of information that uh, B2B marketers, I think, are obviously the, the target people that should be reading it. But I I think even if you're just a marketer in general, it's helpful to kind of understand what's going on out there and why. And if you're a B2C marketer, you may, you may learn some things there. So um, thank you for coming on and geeking out with me and like letting me ask you a bunch of questions about this stuff. I, I appreciate, um, you know, how you, how you look at things and how you explain things. I also appreciate that you guys are doing the whole first party data thing. It's, it's a thing that I think quite a bit about and I'm very much about data rights and things like that. So I appreciate you're doing the good work. Uh, I want you to take this time in the show to uh, promote the hell out of yourself and or netline and and just think of this as your shameless plug time. You can talk about whatever it is you want, promote anything you want, completely your time in the show right now. Yeah, so um, I'll do about netline. I don't need to promote myself. Uh, hop over to netline.com, grab yourself a copy of the report. It's available right on the homepage or if you go into the resources sections there too. I'd also mention, take a look on the site, uh, netline.com for Audience Explorer. It's a free and interactive tool that's kind of a visualized front end on top of this report. So think of the report as a static snapshot that's a review of an annualized data set. Audience Explorer is a completely interactive tool. It's ungated, by the way, so you don't have to register for anything. And you can actually go in and say, I want to understand how, I don't know, accountants are consuming content. That'll then distill all of this data into a live report that you can then slice and dice by company size and industry and geographic location and see the types of content that perhaps accountants are gravitating towards, uh, the most active in market companies in a specific industry and so on. So it's a fun tool. Um, you get introduced to Luna, who's our mascot uh, and the Netline Explorer. It's a little astronaut. And um, yeah, we hope you have a good time. If you're Digging into the report, though, uh, an audience explorer, please share your feedback and you can hit me up on on Twitter or LinkedIn. Cool. And I will put that stuff in the show notes. Uh, just again, another uh, plug from me. I, I really, really love what you guys do at Netline. I think the product is amazing. Um, for B2B marketers, it's absolutely something that you should like, don't take my word for it. Just do your own little trial. Like you don't have to spend a ton of money on this. Like take a thousand bucks or 500 bucks and go test out Netline. I'm extremely confident that you'll be like, I cannot believe I didn't know that this thing existed. Um, <laughs> You're that's too exact, kind. No, it's legitimately how I felt. I was like, oh God, I've been wasting so much time and money on other things when I could have just been doing this and looking like a rock star for my clients. So um, I'm a big fan. So I would- Yeah, we're super appreciative. Um, and and hearing your story, you know, it's super motivating. Um, you know, we, we use a lot of reviews on G2, uh, to offer inspiration to those of us inside the company that really aren't on the front lines and don't get to hear this kind of great stuff. Yeah. So every time there's these types of experiences, it's, it's extremely rewarding and affirming that we're on the right path, doing good work 
and will continue to do so. I'll tell you, just I, I would be willing to bet almost every agency that utilizes NetLine is probably a wealth of positive feedback because agency environments are like dumpster fires. They're just like this insane, you said fast it. paced. It's no, it's true. And I say it lovingly, like I've yeah. been doing the agency thing for like a decade now, but like, it is like madness and, you know, clients and deadlines and all these things. And like, you find this tool where you're like in 48 hours, I can come back and look like an absolute, like monster rock star to my client. It's just, it's really, really cool. So yeah, I would definitely uh, say get, get, get a bunch of agencies on, uh, on your short list or if you have people internally who are having a rough day, be like, yeah, let me ring up this agency. Yeah, most yeah, definitely. Three minutes definitely. to say something nice. Well, anyway, um, I'm so glad you came on. I think that there's so much in this that people should really, um, you know, they should, they should definitely go check out the report. I hope that they learn something. And if they learn something, they should tell someone about it. And if they tell someone about it, I guess that would mean that this episode is shareable. Wait, don't leave. If you've never listened to my fancy outro, do it just once for me, please. Okay. If you enjoy shareable and you find it valuable, there's a few ways that you can support the show. One, you can share it on social media, which I strongly encourage. I mean, it's literally the name of the show, Shareable. Two, you can review it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're an Overcast user, as many of my listeners are, make sure to click that star button on the episodes that you like. The third way that you can support the show is by blogging about it or discussing it on your own podcast or even by making a YouTube video where you talk about one of the episodes. And then the final way that you can support the show is by supporting it directly on Patreon. You can find the link in the show notes. Now, before I let you go, I want to tell you about one other thing. You see, Shareable is just one of many projects that I'm working on at any given time. I've got another podcast called Rogue. I do a live streaming show every week called The Heroic Council. I've got a blog where I release a blog post twice a week. And if you're looking to keep up with all sorts of different content that can help you grow and become a superhero in life, I want you to check out jeffgibber.me. That's where I list all of my current projects and projects that are coming up in the future, including my forthcoming book, The Lovable Leader. It would mean a lot to me if you could go and check out some of the other things I've worked on because I put just as much of my heart into those projects as I do into Shareable. Thank you so much for being a listener. Thank you for being a supporter. And I hope to see you here on the next episode of Shareable.